Good afternoon. My name is Dustin Yervolo, and I'm here today with Mitch Vance, and we are going to discuss uh, an event in history, the Kent State Massacre. Uh, I'm going to let uh, let Mitch introduce himself and uh, go from there. My knowledge of this uh, issue is strictly based on what I've read in history books and seen on the History Channel. Uh, but uh, hopefully uh, we, we'll learn a little bit more from somebody who is on the outskirts of the situation as it was happening. How are you doing today, Mitch? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy to talk about this because uh, when you've been involved in a tragic event as complicated as this and as tragic uh, a thing as a massacre, the first thing as you as you grow older, you don't ever want to forget. And it's one of many things I've witnessed in, in my long life that I always want people to rem remember, never forget. And so that would be a kind of a subtopic, is uh, I want to bring this up every year, and I always strive as I near each May 4th, because it happened on May 4th, 1970, in a little town called Kent, Ohio. And what happened was the National Guard uh, was uh, called into the campus and uh, bivouacked there and uh, declared martial law and attempted to uh, stop a uh, demonstration on the following Monday after the invasion of Cambodia. And in that uh, confrontation, uh, four uh, students were killed on campus uh, going to class, uh, trying to hide behind cars uh, that were not directly involved, uh, and some of them, some of the, a couple of the, the students that were killed were directly involved. So people got wounded. I think there were at least uh, 14 people wounded. One uh, gentleman was paralyzed uh, for life, and he was like two football fields away on the ground, and the bullet hit him in the spine. Just, you know, I think if there's one thing I would tell people to be aware of when you have these, these uprisings where military units are called in and they open fire, it's indiscriminate. They're, they don't know whether they're killing the, uh, the guilty people or the innocent. And in many cases, it, it's called peripheral damage, I think. Or so, collateral damage. Collateral. I'm sorry. Yeah. That was a misprint. Yeah, collateral damage. And so uh, each year that comes around, I think about this, and I, I would like people to understand, uh, first of all, that I'm looking on this from f uh, the distance of 50 years. Uh, um, the basic facts I'm, I'm very sure of, and uh, some things I might conflate, if, if people that I, I may refer to might not remember it the same way. And this happens to be a, an incident where there were hundreds, if not thousands, of both uh, peripheral witnesses like myself or eyewitnesses. Uh, and there were cameras. There were student photographers. There were, uh, the, I, had, I just reviewed in the last couple of days an hour of video of the events of that weekend and that day. Uh, so there's lots of recorded uh, history of it, but what happened immediately after the shooting, uh, 
was there, uh, there was a, a, an immediate attempt to cover it up. The guard unit that fired huddled. We, we can only assume they were getting their story straight. Uh, the guns that were fired were immediately confiscated. Uh, we don't know where they are. They've never, never been able to find those rifles and the weapons. Uh, so the, the, the story that first got out about Kent State was wildly inaccurate. And, uh, and what's worse, it tended to uh, vilify and demonize the victims. And I can talk more about that in detail. But just a little bit about me. I was uh, born and raised in uh, North Carolina. And I jokingly say sometimes I immigrated to Ohio in the middle of my high school uh, years. And uh, that's why I happened to end up, uh, uh, my hometown was about 12 miles from Kent. So I, I bring a perspective to this incident of a local. Uh, this campus uh, would have been, uh, well, it was close. We drove, we, we, uh, we, could, we couldn't walk to school, but uh, we could uh, easily get rides and so forth. So uh, it was not an elite school. It was uh, working class kids. Most of the, uh, the students I hung out with were uh, driving back and forth. They were commuters. But anyway, uh, what I what I uh, I did was uh, I have an attitude that anyone who knows me will recognize as having a very uh, uh, what's the word healthy disrespect for authority uh, because as I said, my family on my father's side were hillbillies in West Virginia, on mountaintops and on remote roads and so forth, and I love them to death. And then, of course, my mother and my family in the South were mill workers, considered by, uh, in North Carolina, by North Carolina standards, they were white trash. So my attitude was shaped early in life by uh, being on the bottom side of Southern society uh, in, in a cotton mill environment uh, where the workers were underpaid and abused and overworked and just barely above uh, uh, the child labor laws. You know, most of my family started working in mills when they were uh, 11, 12 years old or, or younger. They could go to the third grade before their families would put them in the mill to support uh, feeding the rest of the family. So that's the kind of attitude uh, that that I had toward authority. I was. In general terms, I was resistant to authority to, to a great extent. You want me to do what? Stand in front of a cannon? <laughs> no, I don't think so. You know, but that, uh, now uh, the perspective again that I bring uh, to this discussion of Kent State is as a local person, and I, that's, I started in Kent after I graduated in 1962 from uh, uh, Manaway High School in, in, in Portage County there, tw 10 or 12 miles from campus. And I was there, <clears throat> I got my bachelor's in 1966, but I immediately started working on uh, my master's degree. And by the time 1970 rolled around, uh, I was working as a, uh, 
doing special investigations to complete my master's degree. And so I had to be on campus occasionally for meetings with uh, the professorial staff. Uh, but I was still actively involved in being a student at Kent, although I was older. And uh, I happened to be, at the time, working downtown in a strip mall. So uh, my perspective is that I saw this anti-war movement develop from a very small gathering uh, with a couple of organizers from out of state, and then I watched it progress. Each year it got bigger and bigger until, of course, the explosion in 1970. And based on my experience with law enforcement growing up, um, having family members uh, physically assaulted and abused, and harassed as I was even as a teenager. Uh, I was fearful, very fearful, that where this was going was to a violent outcome. And, and I thought that outcome would happen in 1969. But uh, 1969 was a big demonstration, but it didn't result in, in violence until 1970. So if you have any questions in the interim, you know, just let me know. But I think that's kind of a rundown a little bit. Yeah. Um, well, I guess uh, one thing is, um, I mean, we, we know that there, there was a lot of protests on campuses during the whole Vietnam era. What was the, uh, at least the official story version of why the National Guard felt the need to open fire versus uh what you as somebody around the situation and knowing people who were on the ground uh, uh, ha has been discussed as being their side of the story? For one thing, uh, there was, as I said, the invasion of Cambodia was announced officially uh, that weekend before uh, the Monday shooting. And that's what precipitated a riot in downtown Cleveland where they burned down buildings and broke windows and, you know, it was a basically a, what I would call a mini-riot. But the uh, mayor of Kent that weekend was uh, a gentleman named Leroy Satram. And Leroy was a cousin of Joe Satram here in, in Bismarck. Oh, wow. And, uh, but Leroy could not, his local police department uh, could not contain had difficulty, they couldn't contain the riot downtown on that Saturday night. So at the time, the uh, Ohio National Guard unit from our community was on duty in Cleveland for a, a Teamsters strike. Mm -hmm. And where there were snipers, and there were actually shots fired, and uh, they were immediately dispatched from Cleveland where they had little rest and no sleep, they were <clears throat> dispatched from Cleveland to Kent, which was maybe an hour down or less down the road. So because it was convenient, you see. Mm. And uh, so they were, Leroy asked for them uh, to be dispatched for crowd control. And Leroy, I believe Mr. Satram felt that he was betrayed because Rhodes had a different agenda. Governor Rhodes, who would have to permit the uh, dispatching of the troops, uh, 
had another agenda. He was running for the Senate seat held by John Glenn. Oh. And he was a law and order candidate. And it was all Richard Nixon's uh, uh, and the conservative law and order uh, propaganda. They wanted to be to appear strong. And we're, we're going to put a stop to this criminal behavior once and for all. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, Rhodes was under uh, pressure, as Bill Guy was here eventually in, in uh, North Dakota. He was under pressure to bring in the guard. And somewhere in this story, uh, Rhodes decided not to come in for crowd control, but to come in and declare national or uh, martial law and occupy the campus. So they came in and did this inflammatory uh, event of bivouacking in the middle of the commons and having all of these armored vehicles and and helicopters and everything like it was a full-scale war. Hmm. Show of force. And the locals like myself were saying, what are you doing? (laughs) These are a bunch of kids. They don't have guns. You know, I mean, we could see that weekend that the whole tone would change. And so they camped, and that's when uh, basically the whole, uh, the, the, uh, the governor did tell all the vice chancellors to stand down. He was controlling the campus, and somehow the, the guard got the order to shoot to kill if, you know, obviously it's always conditional, on if uh, the circumstances warrant. And they came to town with loaded uh, weapons. They were issued ammunition, which in the history of the National Guard deployments in Ohio, when I was around there, they never were, their guns were never loaded. Mm-hmm. So these, these young kids on campus not having the experience that I did, knowing that all guns are loaded, if they're pointing them at you, they're not your friend. So they were out there. It was a game. You know, this yeah. was a, a rite of spring. We're going to, you know, we're going to just, they played cat and mouse with these guys, not realizing that it was deadly serious. Mm-hmm. You know, and the guard, in a, in, and I'm not trying to defend them, but they were put in a position that if they had to break up this demonstration uh, and they refused to, to go home, well, then they've got to assert their authority and if a person's got a gun and they don't use it, well, what's going to happen? You won't mean a thing. Well, we, they didn't anyway, but once they got done shooting, the, the students realized, hey, this is real. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, this is scary. So I don't know quite when Rhodes and the generals, they were two generals, guard generals on campus running mm-hmm. that affair. And... One left and, and left a younger general in charge, and that was a fatal mistake. The older general knew that there would be no need uh, to fire on students, but the younger general uh, had a different story, and he, he's the one that authorized uh, shooting. Yeah, obviously. The younger uh, officers, you know, just younger in general tend to be more... Uh, uh, trigger happy and and uh, looking to prove themselves. I think that goes, you know, cops in general. You know, if you get pulled over, the old guy doesn't want to spend any more time with you than he has to because it just means more paperwork. The young guy thinks he's got to prove himself. Right. 
and he'll, he'll give you a, a and ticket for something that another cop would be like, just don't do it again. <laughs> right. And he was, uh, you know, you know, uh, anecdotes I've heard. Uh, that general that was on duty that day uh, was honored by people all over the country for doing what had to be done to stop this. Uh, and that over, over time, that narrative has not helped. Uh, the government had the upper hand in telling the story uh, for several years, but as I've said, there's enough uh, uh, witnesses and there's enough evidence now that uh, people that won't allow them to forget or cover it up, it's, it's changing the story. And they basically martyred those kids. Uh, you know, whatever, what they were throwing rocks, of course, and they did injure National Guardsmen. There were National Guardsmen that had to be treated. Some were sent to the hospital. But uh, the one aspect of, uh, this might have been a part of your question coming up, why did it happen at Kent State? Mm -hmm. Of all the places where, where the demonstrating was going on around the country, and, and like all answers to this, uh, Kent State was a convergence of the undercover activities of various uh, antagonists and protagonists. In other words, both sides had people provocators, as the French say, agents provocateurs. They're there to foment violence. Mm -hmm. And there would be uh, there would be a question of when it would happen, but there was no question for people like me and, and others that that have some kind of idea how the military works and how how this stuff goes, this counterterrorism. It was never a question of if it was going to happen. It was just a question of when. And, and that's a common thread between all. Uh protests and riots and everything. I mean, you go back last summer in Minneapolis where where you had Black Lives Matter blaming right-wingers for coming in and, and provoking them, leading them on, that sort of thing, acting outrageous. And the people that, that stormed the Capitol in, in January said, you know, the, the, the Trump supporters said, oh, well, it's, it's the Antifa people. And, you know, it, it's hard to say that, no, there was absolutely none of that, because we all know that in all these situations, there's always a little bit of that. Whether or not that was the spark that made it go over the top is another question. Whether they were the ones leading the charge is another question. But there's always infiltration. I mean, when I started in, in, uh, uh, in the political world, the first thing that I did was uh, uh, they... they trained us how to do counter-protesting during uh, the, the tail end of the Bush years. And, and Code Pink was the big left-wing uh, protesting group. And they took us out to a, a recruitment station in S Silver Springs, Maryland. Uh, and, and we were on the other side of the street from, from the, uh, the anti-war folks. And uh, we sent in our own agent provocateur in a chicken suit. Literally, he, he, the tallest guy in the group, he had a chicken suit, and he had a sign that said, Chickens for Peace. He went over to the, the anti-war protesters, stood there in their group for about 45 minutes before they figured out that he wasn't one of them. 
<laughs> I mean, it's the absolute funniest way to do it. I mean, if you're going to infiltrate, do it in a hilarious way. They got tired of dealing with him because he just argued with them. But these things have always been part of the game. And uh, so it, it's not unusual to, to hear that that was going on. And, and obviously there's always those with an agenda to, uh, to, cut and to make things worse. You know, the, the, and again, from my personal experience on campus over those years, uh, they were uh, trying to get information on everybody because I believe just about every government agency involved in uh, counterterrorism, like the FBI, they had undercover agents, mm -hmm. and they were easy to spot. They all wore the same shoes. <laughs> so if you had a, a, a meeting that you wanted to be just your organization, you might meet under a, in a little closet under a, a stairwell, and when you light the candle, there's one guy there you didn't invite, and you look at his shoes, and it was an FBI agent. You know, were they really wearing shiny dress yeah, shoes? Government issue shoes. Oh yeah. You know, um, and uh, you just well, you know, you snuff the candle and everybody leaves. But the sad thing is, uh, I was approached a couple of times for people probing for information about me, mm -hmm. and they didn't have to be undercover. I would have told them anything I wanted to know because I wasn't involved, in, in my mind, uh, in anything that I wasn't, I mean, that you could just say, hey, Mitch, what were you doing at that demonstration? Oh, yeah. I was with my neo-Nazi friend who wanted to show me how to do, uh, <laughs> how to do uh, counter-protesting. Uh, uh, counter because uh, he, he learned that in Hungary, you know, protesting against the Russians mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, doing uh, Nazi stuff, I guess. I mean, I, I don't want him to think I thought he was a total Nazi, but he's what I would call a new version. Right. And he was one of those Eastern, he was my college uh, German teacher. Uh, he was one of, my, uh, one of those characters that the CIA would pay to come over that were known Nazis. Mm -hmm. uh, to help fight against the Russian Cold War, and they wanted to establish a, uh, a an ultra right wing uh, movement inside the Republican Party, again to help counter the Russians. I mean, for the best or the worst reasons, the CIA messed up mm -hmm. because that that really has come I, I, to me that effort. To bring in right-wing, uh, uh, what I, what would I say? I would say, really uh, radical right-wing people to help establish this right-wing uh, movement inside the party has really taken over the place. It's like the barbarians are not at the gate. The yeah. barbarians are in the city, and they are running it. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you if you have any question about who were the provocators in that January 6th event, and you don't know yet, <laughs> you can't see, or else you refuse to see right. uh, the, uh, the uh, Blue Lives Matter people beating policemen to death. And, and all, you round these guys up, as they are doing, 
And who are they? They're, they're convicted felons themselves. They're criminals. Mm -hmm. Of course they love that. Mm -hmm. You know, they did that for nothing in prison. Right. You know, now they're out, and they have a group that wants, hey, wants you, uh, we'll give you a pair of shoes so you all know each other. <laughs> yeah, the, well, the, the, in modern times, what has happened is that the conservative movement wanted to be the big tent so bad that they didn't care who was inside the tent. Precisely. That, that's what's happened. And, Precisely. Uh, you know, when I started in, in 2006 recruiting kids on campus to start conservative groups, uh, the, you know, these were the nerds. These were not your people that were running around carrying guns, doing, you know, weird stuff. They were the nerds that couldn't, talk to people and they wanted a club and they were ill at ease. They, they were smart. They knew history, they knew economics and they wanted to have a club. And, and, uh, you know, this was at the tail end of the Bush administration. You had the, uh, uh, you know, it, it was libertarian bent, you know, they, they thought that Bush was big government conservative conservatism and they wanted to fight against that literally in a matter of 14 years. And, and this change happened after the Tea Parties and after the Tea Parties got infiltrated by uh, the establishment Republicans. Uh, then it, it became an, a, a magnetic attraction to everybody who um, had a grievance, basically. And, and a lot of them were the, the what used to be called uh, Reagan Republican or Reagan Democrats who hadn't moved over yet, or people who thought they were a Democrat, didn't know what it meant, uh, wanted to see protectionist things, pro-union people, you know, uh, very militantly, you know, anti-immigrant, and, and you had this convergence of, of people. And once they got into the party, the militia types came in. And, and, and so it was kind of this, five-step process where gradually, it, where, while it started as people who were simply looking for policy changes, uh, little by little they kept the, the mission creep of the project kept coming in and, and to the point where the people who were considered far right to begin with, you know, now are kind of barely right of center. <laughs> well, yeah, because the center has moved right. The, the center there is are no, there are no there are no moderates no. today. No. I mean and when you have radicals they 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 uh, create radicals as a counter on the other side. Mm -hmm. And so one radical movement pushes the other radical movement and they get so far apart that they're not even talking the same language right. anymore. And people I've noticed in North Dakota and around the country, they still, in spite of the, the, the pattern they've seen the Republican Party and the conservative movement follow, they still want to be more conservative. And, you know, they're like the doomsday people that say Jesus is coming on the 5th. <laughs> and when they show up and Jesus doesn't show up, well, he didn't show up today because we weren't conservative enough. <laughs> so now we're going to double down and be even more radically conservative, you know, 
And maybe this this revolution we're causing now, this attempt to overthrow the United States government, will work the next time if we're more Republican and more establishment. I mean, more uh, conservative. And my my uh, suggestion to them would be: you need to change your wording, because you if you think you can be an old line conservative like mommy and daddy, it ain't gonna happen. Those days are gone. If you still want to be called a Republican after you saw that riot, and I got, I got some questions for you. Mm -hmm. You know, just on a uh, pure factual basis, we can't even talk to you because you don't, you can't agree on a common set of facts, and you're in a big hurry to let's forget all about it and move on and become, you know, let's get, you know, let's join together. No. You've closed that door when you uh, financed and guided and led and recruited for that damn uh, riot. Mm -hmm. And those are facts. I'm not just, you know, but getting back to Kent State, it's the same old pattern. You know, Kent State, and this is what my prediction is, it's the beginning of the end for this kind of activity because that's what happened to Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. Richard Nixon thought he won. But guess what? The people around Richard Nixon said that was when he lost, he got unhinged. That's when everything went to hell and ended up with the Watergate burglary, mm -hmm. which did him in because, you know, there was something in those Democratic files that would have revealed him to possibly have been a traitor yeah, and he didn't want that, you know. So anyway, I, I mean, there's a whole, this is a whole books have been written on just, you know, that slide. Uh, but if you if you follow, say what happened to Agnew. Mm -hmm. You know, Agnew they caught up with Agnew, the IRS got all the money. Agnew had to pay the bill eventually. Mm -hmm. And he had to pay a huge fine. That's why he had to be an anti-Semitic for hire for the Saudi Arabia government to pay his fine and, and money that he bribes he had to return to different corporate uh, donors. I mean, this, this is a matter of history now. And history will not be kind to uh, the people involved in that riot, who are, by the way, right now serving in the Senate and the House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. Well, what I, what I think we will see as time marches on, uh, they will gather up as many of the guilty parties as they can, mm -hmm. and uh, some will escape. Uh, and uh, over time, and you know, the, the wheels of justice grind maddeningly slowly. Mm -hmm. But over the years, these people will end up in prison. There will be more Trump administration officials jailed, including maybe Trump. Mm -hmm. And one can only hope. Uh, somebody's got to pay for these crimes. I mean, we just can't sit back and say, yeah, we're all going to join hands and sing Kumbaya. Mm -hmm. No, you can't allow the, the layers of crime and corruption that have been uh, put on steroids in the last five years right. uh, to go 
you know, we just have to deal with that. If it, and, and, and above all of this is the culture of violence. That's what happened at Kent State. That community was a redneck community, and it was very conservative, and their answer to everything is kill them. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, they're students, big deal. <laughs> they should have killed more. I heard those comments, you know, days after these children were shot. Kill more. Should have killed more. I heard, I was in a party with National Guardsmen the next weekend. They're, we're going to go back and kill all of them. That's what we're going to do, drunk soldiers, you know. Right. But they weren't really soldiers. But, And I was there drinking with them. And I'm thinking, do you know who I am? <laughs> do you know? Uh, so, uh, I mean, I'm, kid- I'm not kidding you. I was at a party and... Uh, because that guard unit was from our community. Those shooters had sisters and brothers and cousins on campus going to class that day. They could have shot their own family members. Mm-hmm. And the fir- one of the first National Guard regulations is you do not call a local unit in on a civil disturbance in the community where they're domiciled. Right. Because they could be shooting their family members. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, I mean, the hatred towards students, protesters, students, they didn't care, was, was I mean, it was, they were enraged. They hated us. Well, the, the, because back then there was still the, a hippie was a commie mentality. And, and that lasted a long time. That lasted, a, you know, until about 20 years ago, really. Uh-huh. And, uh then it, and, and at some point, which was interesting, the, the anti-government right uh, started to be very sympathetic to the hippies that got shot. And, and now a lot of those, the, the, uh, the radical right-wingers who run around, you know, with the AR-15s on their shoulder and everything, you know, they point to Kent State as when... The government got bad, and that that was when things really turned, and and the government turned against its own people. So it is interesting that you know one of the and and, and that's true. So that that is one of the areas where they are right, but they're using that correctness and that you know in correct interpretation of history for the wrong reasons now. Yeah, and and the irony of that is that was a conservative government that did that. Mm-hmm. Richard Nixon was a Republican and a conservative and the people in that community by and large were conservative Republicans and that to me is a natural outgrowth of conservative Republicanism. To See, me, I mean, does I, I mean, this is my personal point of view, okay? Yeah. I'm not, I don't have any authority to say this other than what every conservative blurts out if they have, oh, I believe this. Is it a fact? doesn't have to be. It's my faith. I believe it. Right. You know, I believe Christ is coming on the fourth or the fifth or whatever. So uh, they're turning against their own if they're looking at that as the turning point. Well, and the conservative movement, at least that I've been involved in, for 15, 16 years, we've always considered Richard Nixon to be a liberal. 
EPA, Department of Education, you know, all the things that conservatives are against were created under Richard Nixon. What, what LBG didn't create, Richard Nixon created later. And, um, and, and by the way, there's some truth to that. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, I mean, and, and this was when, you know, yeah, it, at the same time, the, the, the Democratic Party was still kind of in that, in that uh, and I think part of the reason that there's these different views is because now, you know, 50 years later, we see that that was the tail end of the realignment where the last of the Dixiecrats, the, the, when, when the Democratic Party was the conservative party, because the Republican Party was founded as the liberal party. I know. And, I know and the Democratic Party wanted to keep slavery and tariffs and all that stuff, you know, and, and they were the, the party of Jim Crow until the 40s, the 1940s, and, and Truman uh, started the process of kicking that crowd out of the party little by little, and, and then they got pushed over to the Republican Party. And, and that's when the Republican Party became the conservative party by comparison, not by what today's conservatives consider to be conservative by today's standards. So it, it, it's a generational and, and time-based context that the, the definitions of these words have gotten completely lost. That's correct. And what, I rec what I've always said is when you start, when you, uh, when you use labels, party labels, uh, and labels to almost anything, that's when the discussion is not rational anymore. Mm -hmm. If you want to talk about the issue, if you want to talk about an issue, you know, nobody wants to pay taxes. Well, I can sit down and you, can I, you and I can agree on a lot of things. Because who wants to pay them? Right. Somebody's got to. And so where does that burden fall? You know, we can have discussions like that, and, and we would be shocked to find the areas we have where we have common interests. Mm -hmm. But when you start talking about, well, conservatives say, it has no meaning anymore. Right. You're exactly right. It's the whole world is inside out. It's Alice in Wonderland. Black is white and white is black. Yeah. And if you don't believe that, they'll convince you with a spate of lies. Mm-hmm. You know, you I mean, don't we, believe your lie. You know, your lying eyes. You don't see what you're seeing. You can look at trade and immigration. You know, immigr in in 2006, John McCain almost got his immigration reform done. If he would have been elected president in 08 instead of Obama, he would have gotten full-blown amnesty that he wanted, and, and the fight would have been over that instead of Obamacare, but McCain would have won because he had the numbers, and enough Democrats would have come over to support it. Um, and then, you know, when Trump got into the picture, uh, trade, all of a sudden, Republicans in 2016 went from being free trade at any cost to... All trade is bad, and we need to use this as a weapon against China. I mean, th these things flip on a dime. It, they, they don't change very often, but when they do, it is fast, and you can't even tell it's happened until it's over. Right. And that's just like, you know, majorities in, in Congress and legislatures. These, when, when there is a flip, it's quick. Yes. And what, what, I, uh, what we have to do... Uh, to kind of wrap this up a little bit, is we have to come back to the similarities between the the happening at Kent State and what happened on on January the sixth. 
because that ties into my reason to continue to talk about this because not only do I don't want people to forget, I want people to see the parallels of how you get to a violent uprising mm -hmm. where people are murdered, you know, just flat out murdered. And the reason this is called a massacre instead of, I mean, the numbers don't make the difference between uh, a massacre and, you know, whether it's called a massacre, it's the, it's the wanton violence, the meaningless loss of life of people that, uh, that normally have nothing to do with these kind of things. You know, cops were being killed that were there to protect the victims happen, the senators and representatives. Mm -hmm. This is how absurd it is. The cops were trying to protect them and, and Mike Pence from being lynched, mm -hmm. for God's sake. They had a gallows up there. Yeah. In case you weren't totally aware they were, you know, uh, neo-Confederates and Nazis. Uh, now, they're, they're the victims and the jury. Yep. Now that is, that's insane. You know, as Camus said, life is absurd. If you're looking for meaning in life, you're looking for love in the wrong places, man. <laughs> and the sooner you get used to the fact that you better spend your life living instead of looking for meaning behind it, you know. Yeah. Uh, but the, the depth of absurdity and the extent as, as skeptical as I am and as resistant to authority, it never ceases to shock me how low they can get and how stupid uh, ideology can make otherwise bright or brilliant people, mm -hmm. otherwise very charitable people into absolute barbarians that would rather, you know, fry babies at the, at the border and think, you know, that's okay because their parents left them there. So... That's what I'm getting at here. We need to go back to things like Zip the Zap. We need to go back to Kent State. We need to re-examine Jackson State. We need to uh, re-examine uh, re the Hard Hat Riot, where they beat kids' skulls in, in uh, on Market Street, or you know, in, the, uh, in New York City. Uh, and they got medals for that, by the way, hmm. uh, from Nixon. Um, we need to go back and, and constantly re-examine these things because, and I'll, I'll conclude by telling you this, when I was uh, a graduate student at Kent, right about the time this happened, I had a French professor who I was translating uh, Ernest Hemingway in French as a class project, you know. And he said, you know, you, you kids need to go back to the classics and re-examine every 50 years or so, because the whole, your whole perspective and everybody, the history's perspective changes, you know, and sometimes you see things in a better light. So my point in constantly coming back and reminding people of Kent State is so that you have a roadmap for the future, because this ain't going to change. This, you know, this kind of it's thing. It's only getting worse. It's, it's getting worse, and, and, and the bigger picture is we have to deal with the culture of violence, and we have a big, strong vein of violent behavior going back to the Jim Crow days and 
and the glory days of the Confederacy, you know, when, uh, you know, hanging people on the nearest oak tree. By the way, can you believe that Texas uh, uh, state legislator, or that, uh, that uh, what was he, a senator from Texas, Roy, named uh, Chip Roy, yeah, said yesterday, you know, oh, we, we're very serious about justice, you know, in Texas, they say, if you want justice, we want it too. And we just generally look down a, down a road for the nearest tall oak tree. And that's his concept of justice. And he said that in public. In 2020. In 2020 2021. 2021, yes. Thank you very much. And we'll